Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. So we're in chapter 9 this morning, or beginning chapter 9. And the Lord has a lot for us here. You know, we live in a culture that in one form or another increasingly devalues life. And we see that in a lot of ways in our culture. And uh, the Lord has a word for us about that this morning from all the way back in Genesis. If if you're joining us or visiting with us today, we've been recently looking at the, the flood account. And we've seen that God brought a flood as God promised to bring a flood to deal with the the rampant wickedness on earth. And he said, I'm going to wipe it out by wiping everyone out. And then we come to this passage on the sanctity of human life. And I'll be honest with you, that can be a little bit perplexing. God just killed everybody on the earth. And now he's going to tell us how important human life is. But here's the thing. God is the righteous one. And any second chance that we are given is a gift of God's mercy. None of us deserve a second chance. But God has freely chosen to give everyone a second chance, a third chance, a fifth chance, sometimes a a 100th chance. And so we'll read today verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. And if you have a Bible or a phone or a Bible app, I'd ask you to look on that with me this morning. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you be upon every beast of the earth and upon the birds of the heavens upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by his blood, I'm sorry, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you? Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. God God blesses Noah here and he he reestablishes the priorities for living in a new world by showing him the innate value and the priority of human life. By showing Noah And by extension, his family, the innate value and priority of human life. God's blessing reveals his divine purpose for mankind. This is the third time we read about God blessing. Uh, We see God blessing Adam, and then we see that recounted. 
And now we see it here again. It's the, I, I think, the second instance of blessing, but the third time we see it in the text, if we're understanding how the story is kind of uh, retold a little bit in there. So God, God renews his previous blessing, which he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, when he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When, when Noah came off of the earth, Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives came off of the earth, it was a very different world. It was probably shaped quite differently. won't go into many specifics because I didn't see it. I wasn't there. But life essentially began all over again. No more Adam and Eve. We've guessed ever since where the Garden of Eden truly was. And so this time when we see this blessing phrase, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, we see twice in these seven verses. That's what helps us know this is a, a good length of passage to preach on here because it's in verse 1 and it's in verse tevin, 7, which tells us this is my point for this section in the passage that Moses wrote for us. And verse 7 says, and you, this is a plural form of you, so not only Noah, but you people be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. That is that's strong language, repetitive language that says, don't be shy. Get going and let's start populating this thing. Even that is a different message than we hear culturally. So God's purpose is to renew his purpose for them. God's purpose in creating men and women from the beginning, two genders, two sexes, no more, is that they might enter into fruitful relationship with one another. That they might marry one another and in that married relationship... Know one another intimately. Get pregnant and bear children. In Ezra 9, Ezra 9 is, if you have, I don't have time to read the whole passage today because it's not short. But in Ezra 9, if you have time later on this afternoon, this is one of the most beautiful prayers of repentance, I think, in the Bible. If you think, you know, when I repent for something and I say, God, I'm sorry, I'll try not to do it again. Thank you for your grace. And I want to walk to follow your ways. You know, hey, great, good for you. If you are in a point and you say, you know what? I want to learn how to repent well. Read Ezra 9. Ezra is undone. He's embarrassed to go to God. Now, you'll hear me say frequently, we ought not be embarrassed to go to God. Go to God wherever you're at, and that stands true. But when someone is truly grieved over their sin, there is a sense of embarrassment, but it should never keep us from going to God. And it did not keep Ezra from going to God. He just called it what it, what it was. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and I am blushed to lift my face to you for our iniquities, our great sins have risen to the heavens higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Why? Why that prayer? Well, the Israelite daughters 
had begun to marry outside of God's people. God said, don't marry outside my people. I'm creating a holy people for the sake of my name. And in order for that to happen, you need to marry my people. So Israelites marry Israelites. And as Israel got bigger and they, they got around other nations, they got to know these other people. And they're like, oh, I'll missionary date them. Right? I know God said, don't date a non-Christian. Kind of pulling from the New Testament here, if you catch my drift. I'll, I'll date them and maybe we'll bring them to God. Except it almost never works that way. And they began to be more and more like the other nations. They began to want what the other nations want. I'm starting to preach that text and I need to get back. And so God's holy race had mixed itself with the people of other lands. Malachi gives us a little bit of insight on this. I mentioned this uh, several weeks ago, I believe, when the Lord rebukes Israel. Israel sort of, uh, in the book of Malachi, I preached through Malachi a year or two ago, and, and the people of Israel are sort of like, God, how come you're not answering our prayers? And they're just going to church. They're just going through the motions. We're poor. We don't have any blessing. How come you won't answer our prayers? It's the kind of voice where, as parents, we say to our kids, or I say this kind of a phrase, I say, you can say almost any words that you want to me if you change your tone of voice. They're, they're, they're whining, they're dissatisfied with God, and God makes it clear. God says that they're... His main purpose for, uh, for marriage, if, you want, if you're a note taker, this is uh, Malachi 2, 10 through 16. Uh, his purpose for marriage is one single fold, really. He makes people husband and wife. He makes man and woman husband and wife with a portion of the spirit in their union or in their marriage. And then God asks this question. He said, what was the one God... United in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Husband and wife, Christians get married and they follow God so that God can populate the world with his people. We're to bear children and we're to fill the earth for God's glory. Now, there's a whole conversation here about like, you know, are we supposed to have a certain number of children? We're not even going there, right? Fill your quiver, but nobody knows what your quiver is except for the Lord, okay? We're supposed to fill the earth for God's glory. In verse 8, or, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 21, we read something that the Lord said in his heart last week. Uh, like he said a couple of weeks ago that God was grieved and he had heart that he had made grieved in his heart that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain for man was only evil all the time. I'm sorry, the, the thoughts of his intent, the intentions of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth. Okay, I had to get my translation back. Um, but in verse 821, God says in his heart that though mankind is evil from his youth, in other words, I know this. From their youth, their evil. It didn't change after the world was cleared of everyone except for Noah and his family. The intentions of our heart is still only evil all the time. And the Lord knows this. It's called, doctrinally, we call it uh, original sin or total depravity, meaning sin 
has impacted every aspect of who we are. But in God's common grace, we're able to live in a, a reasonable way among one another. We're able to love one another. So God communicates that the earth will remain until it's appointed time, right? You're going to see seasons are going to continue. Years are going to continue. And that's, that's what he's communicating in the end of verse, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter 8. But God's purpose, and we all need to hear this. Every one of us needs to hear this. God's purpose for your marriage, God's purpose for my marriage is not primarily about our own happiness. God's main priority and purpose for your marriage is that you would grow in holiness and that you would have, if you're able and not everyone is able, children to raise Ephesians 6 tells us in the fear and admonition of the Lord or in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's why God created marriage. That's why God gave us to one another. But friends, that will ultimately be for our ultimate joy. When we're living according to God's ways, when we're self-sacrificing, when we're not just trying to be a happy married couple, and if God's in the mix, great. If he's not, eh. But when we're really striving for, and, and, and after sometimes many years, God works in our heart, and God works in our heart, and God, he chisels off the edges, and he chisels off the edge, and we're like, oh, this is painful. I do not like this. I'm not sure if I like him or her. I'm not sure if I like him or her. Feelings are usually mutual, and God says, I'm working. I'm working. I'm working. I speak Jesus over my family. We keep looking to the Lord. Say, okay, God, I believe that you're working. In faith, I trust that you're working. And so... God's purposes, our purposes for the lives of our children must align with God's or there's going to be friction with the Lord. We have a lot of wonderful things that we can do for our children. Their number one priority is not to be a professional athlete. It is for some. It's not for as many as who dedicate their life to travel sports and stick church on the background. And for a third of the year, you're not at church. And I love you, whoever, whomever I'm speaking to. I love you. The Lord loves you. But your number one priority on this earth is to train up your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, to love your spouse with the grace which God supplies so that you're able to do that. By the way, I just kind of picked on travel sports. Many, many, many other things that I could mention. So I just... You're a sports person. Let's still be friends. It's, there's a lot going on that takes us away from church and our culture anymore. The title of my sermon is The Sanctity of Human Life because God made it really clear that human life is distinct from animal or creature life. Now, we instinctively know this, but uh, there are people all around us, again, culturally, who devalue human life and, and, and value or escalate or elevate the life of animals, even over human life at times. It is completely opposed to God, and it is wicked in every sense of the word. Now, we're to be good stewards. If we have of our world and of animals and all kinds of stuff, I can't even go into it. We are to be good stewards. But God makes it clear 
that human life has the priority. God gave plants and animals to sustain people and to provide for atonement. That's the second point. We see that in verses 2 through 4 here. He says here, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every animal. It's almost like giving animals a head start in a race, right? You ever done that? You've raced somebody, you know you're faster, and you know you got them. You're like, I'll give you a head start. I'm going to count to whatever you count to. And then you let them go and like, you didn't give me enough of a head start. God put the fear of mankind in every animal, he says, to give them a a head start so that in our seeking them for food, we don't wipe them all out. Right? Notice they don't all line up at your door in the morning. Be like, hey, anybody need eggs? Hey, want some venison? Here I am. I'm just waiting for you. No. They run. And we seek them. And we hunt. And we try to be good stewards when we hunt. And we use every part of the animal that we can. Absolutely. Yes and amen to all of that. One commentator said, Did the horse know his own strength and the the weakness of the miserable wretch who unmercifully rides him and drives and whips and goads and oppresses him? Would he not with one stroke of a hoof destroy his tyrant possessor? But while God hides these things from him, he impresses his mind with the fear of his owner so that he is trained up for and he is employed in the most useful and important purposes. God, as he has given every plant to Adam and Eve before, now he gives plants and every animal to mankind for food. Noah receives this specific instruction, though. Just as I gave you every plant before, every, every green thing, every leafy thing, now I give you every animal. But do not eat its lifeblood. God begins to communicate something incredibly important, massively important about blood here. He gives mankind permission to eat meat, And now he gives them everything, but he says, don't eat flesh with its lifeblood, with its life or with its blood. It would be a synonymous way of saying it. If I said, uh, you know, go, go kill a deer, but don't eat its blood or don't eat it with its life in it. We'd know, generally speaking, what that means. Blood's the equivalent of life. And so this prohibition against eating animals with its lifeblood is significant both then and today. Why? Well, because it's what sustains life by God's decree. And that matters greatly. The importance of bloodshed in the Bible is made incredibly clear by how often the word is used. The word uh, is used uh, 425 times in 355 separate verses throughout the Bible. That's in the English Standard Version. Blood was the sign of mercy for Israel at the first Passover. You paint 
the blood over your doorpost. Blood sealed God's covenant with Israel. Blood sanctified or, or made set apart and holy the altar for sacrifices. Blood set aside the priests in their ministry of making sacrifices. God, I mean, blood made atonement for the people of Israel. It, it sealed the new covenant. It justifies us or, or makes us right before God. Blood brings redemption. Blood brings peace with God, according to Colossians 1.20. Blood cleanses us. It gives us entrance into God's holy temple. It sanctifies us. It enables us to overcome Satan. Revelation tells us the blood of Jesus. Listen to Leviticus 17.11 and 14. For the life of the flesh is in its blood. And I have given you, I'm sorry, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. For the life of every creature is in its blood. The blood, the blood is its life. And therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. All throughout the Old Testament, brothers and sisters, God, through all of the detail of the sacrifices, all of the detail of the offerings, God is communic communicating something incredibly important without which a proper understanding of it, we don't understand the magnitude of the cross of Jesus Christ. The immense amount of sacrifice, the, the, the blood that would have at times, they, people have said, have been up to knees, maybe even above knees. So much sacrifice because so much sin Remember the thoughts, the intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And even after the ark, though man is still evil from his youth, the seasons will roll on. Next week, we're going to see God's covenant where he says, I will never kill man in this way again. I'll never wipe the earth clean in this way again. God's communicated the priority of man over animal and the meaning of one's blood as he blesses Noah, he reestablishes priorities for living in a new world. And now God very specifically states the priority and the sanctity of human life. Listen to this third point here. He says, human life is sacred because mankind is made in his own image. We are so human-centered in our world. We want to tell people how precious and valuable they are to God. And they are. Ultimately, however, because they are made in His image. We're valuable. We're precious in God's sight. Because we're made in his image. Exodus 21, 28 talks about when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten because the owner of the ox shall not be liable. God, God institutes here capital punishment for murder. Now, it's, it's important to understand there's a distinction between killing and murder. 
And we're touching on some topics we really don't have time to get into the weeds on, but there's a difference between if somebody is killed versus if someone is murdered. Right? There are times when killing is not murder because it may be justified, whether that's self-defense or maybe it's capital punishment. Now, some would still say that that's murder. I don't think that that would be murder. Uh, if there's, assuming there's due process and all that sort of stuff goes in there with it. If there's a just war, and there have been many wars, everybody who's on either side of the war doesn't get hanged or killed for murder. It was a war. And so the Bible teaches that the punishment of the guilty one is the role of the government. God gives the government to help restrain man's evil or to restrain man's depravity. To, to restrain, if you will, the only evil all the time intentions of man's heart. God gave government to restrain that and to reward those who live a good life for one another. We would call that God's common grace that God shares with everyone. Martin Luther said, God establishes the government and gives it the sword, meaning the ability to rightly punish, fairly punish those who need to be punished to hold lack of restraint or control in check. Otherwise, violence, as we saw in early Genesis, would run rampant. Remember bragging about how many people they'd kill? But the point is that God takes intentional, senseless killing of people who bear his image incredibly seriously. Because people are created in God's image and every life is sacred. Every life is to be treated with special care. Life begins at the moment of conception. When 23 pairs of chromosomes come together, this is where life begins. And it goes through varying stages. And we're not talking about viability of a human or viability of an embryo. We're not talking about all those kinds of things right now. But what we're saying is one's personality, one's hair color, one's sex When those chromosomes come together, a person is created. And every person has the image of God woven into them. Uh, John Frame, a theologian, in his book Medical Ethics, he says, There's nothing in Scripture that even remotely suggests that an unborn child is anything less than a human person from the moment of conception or fertilization. And so as Christians, I want to tell you, friends, we should do everything that we can to dedicate our lives to preserving the lives of the unborn in many ways. Now, that might happen in some ways that you may not necessarily be thinking about. Waiting until you're married to have sex, for instance, is God's primary way for helping us protect the lives of the unborn because we don't have children that we're not ready for. So young people, college students, teenagers, however young you are, and you can understand what I'm saying. God's good is for you in this. 
to believe his promises and to wait until you're married to have sex. Now, you're not a second, secondary, second-class citizen if you didn't do that. Why? Because God loves us. We can go back to him and find forgiveness and grace in Jesus. But it is not popular in our culture to wait to have sex. I see it all the time on TV. You hear people talk about it. We're, we're uh, old-fashioned, prude people. In fact, you're morons if you consider abstinence until marriage. Cheryl and I watched a show a couple months ago, and just the way, and, I, and they're driving culture. They said, wait, to, they're waiting until they get married. I mean, it's just, it's just mockery, just mockery. They're mocking God. They're mocking what God says. They're mocking God's intent for our good and for the preservation of human life. It's still true that if a, a man and woman don't have sex or get too close, another conversation, that women, only women, don't get pregnant. Don't have sex, you don't get pregnant. Another way is deciding which forms of birth control are morally acceptable in God's eyes. Another conversation. I'd be happy to pull off to the side with you and talk about it if you're not sure what to do. If a form of birth control terminates the life of a person formed with God's image in it, I believe it's immoral birth control. There are forms of birth control that are moral. There are preventative forms of birth control. And these are difficult conversations. They're not simple yeses or noes. We have to use judgment. We have to use wisdom. But what we also need to do is to make sure that as we're striving to make decisions we must, it is not optional, and especially for Christians, it is not optional for us to just to do what we think sounds best. We must consult the Word of God. We must learn from those Christians who've gone before us, who hold highly the Word of God and, have, and teach Christian ethics and help us understand how to make these kinds of decisions that are wise. If you make the wrong one tomorrow, if you made the wrong one yesterday... You're not barred from a wonderful relationship with God. Nobody can change anything that's happened in our past, but the decisions we make from this moment forward impact how accountable you are to the Lord as we know more about what God's Word gives us. A third way that we give our lives to continuing the fight against careless is to continue the fight against careless elective abortion. I'm trying to use very careful words, words here. Careless elective abortion. Abortion. Now, there's a lot of debate that surrounds abortion when it comes to extreme and the smaller, very small percentage of what's considered a medically necessary termination of a, of a pregnancy in order to save the life of a mother. What I'm referring to, and by the way, I would be happy to sit down with you if you just say, hey, I want to pick your brain on this, I want to learn more. Or I want to share my perspective with you. I'll be more than happy to sit down and, and carve out some time with you. 
But to choose to abort a child because he or she may have Down syndrome and we make a quality of life decision about this soul created in God's image is murder. Remember, there's a difference between killing and there's a difference between murder. It's murder. To willingly, electively choose to take an innocent life because it's created in the image of God. He or she. For decades, elective abortion has been promoted in part as part of the sexual revolution and promoting promiscuous living for children, for teenagers, for young adults, and for adults, for everyone. And so it's no wonder we have loads of accidental pregnancies, unplanned pregnancies. And the church needs to be ready, and I think in a lot of ways is and has been ready, to demonstrate care for those in those positions. So that they know the church is here to support you because we value life. We value your life and we value the life of the child and we value the life of the father. Come in. Scars and all. Warts and all. We love you because God loves you because you are made in the image of God. So more now than ever... The, the, the war is not over. We need to continue. We need to legislate that, uh, that adoption can be cheaper. It doesn't have to cost fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000. The amount of money that this nation wastes on frivolous garbage could more than pay for far more ab- adoptions than we could probably calculate. And so, yes, Christians, get involved civically. Get engaged in helping to advocate for those kinds of policies. Why? Because we're supporting unborn life by supporting mothers so that they might have their child when they might otherwise not. Many years ago, my sister, she had one child biologically. And she, I mean, I think she'd have had a dozen if God would have let her. She had one. And she began to pray, God, I desperately want another child. Will you connect me with someone that might have an abortion but would hold off if they knew that someone would adopt their child? And today, Maddie Joy is... 17 years old and a pistol. And for many years, my sister, though living in different states, would drive back to New Jersey and would let Maddie see her mom and her grandma. church we've got to stay engaged we've got to love people well we have to love people sacrificially the fourth way that the church can be actively engaged in this is with understanding the reality of euthanasia in our nation this idea of of, of mercy killing by someone's own desire so that they can die on their own terms again 
I'm trying to be careful with my verbiage. I'm not talking about somebody that's end of life and they're on a respirator and, and we make the decision to medical decision to pull them off of a respirator because it's become very clear that their body has failed them. I'm not referring to those kinds of things. I'm referring to a pride of life that says, I won't go out like that. Sometimes, sometimes I believe it's, it really is selfless, selflessly intended. Meaning, I don't want to be a burden on other people. Because they care for their relatives that they know are going to have to take care of them. But friends, even in our situationally ethic-minded way of viewing this, it's God's decision, not ours. Did you know that suffering, and I, I'm going to say this with a, as humbly as I can, but, but when we suffer, we give other people opportunity to love us. You see, in suffering, God raises up the body of Christ. In suffering, God gives opportunity for other people to sacrifice and not live for convenience. In suffering, though difficult, though however difficult it is, this is difficult to say because I don't suffer like this. I don't suffer like this yet. But God has purpose in it. It is never an accident. And it does not mean that God loves a person any less. Oh, if we would learn people, church, I just called you people. If we would learn not to value how much God loves me by how good I look, how wealthy I am, how connected I am, and how easy my life is. No. You've got you to gotta saturate yourself in Romans 8, friends. Saturate yourself in it. The, the level of suffering that we experience here on this earth is intended in part to help us see the magnitude of the glorious riches of grace that await us one day in heaven. Everything in this life is intended to point our eyes and our hearts heavenward, and that would include human suffering. And where we can be a part of a solution, let's be a part of the solution short of prematurely and willfully ending the life of a person made in God's image. Then we've gone too far. Then we've, we've stepped over the line. Brothers and sisters, there's an entire cultural disregard for God. I know you're not shocked at that. There's an, as a result of that, though, there's an, an entire cultural disregard for the value of human life. Every decision a person makes regarding our lives and the life of another must be first theological. Meaning it must flow from a right understanding of God and his word and the primacy and priority of life that God instituted when he created Adam and Eve, male and female, and when he made them, I'm sorry, when he made the world after the flood. I want to close with several passages that just refer to human life before a person was born. And I'm literally listing like three or four that I'm going to reference, but there are many, many more. Psalm 139 
For you, this is the psalmist praying to God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet, when as yet there was not one of them. In a way that we can't really fathom, God has sort of given his stamp of approval as though he was going through every single day of our life and said, yes, Oh, man, this is going to be a tough one. But for his good and for my glory, I give approval to it. It's going to be hard. Yep, followed by another one and another one. And these are all going to be hard. But I am shaping him. I am shaping her to be more like the image of my son, Jesus. And it is necessary on account of their life and the multitude of lives that their Christ-likeness will impact. The Lord told the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I pointed you a prophet to the nations before you were born. And in Luke 1, 39 and 34, I'm not going to read it, but we read that John the Baptist, who's Jesus' cousin, he leaped in, in Elizabeth's womb when, Carrie, when Mary came into the house pregnant with Jesus. Mary goes to visit her sister, and she's like, pregnant, right? And uh, she goes to visit, and they get near each other, and John the Baptist leaps in his womb. Somehow, some connection, no idea how to explain it. He weeps in his womb next to his cousin. As God blesses Noah, he reestablishes priorities for living in this new world. He makes it clear that he has created human life and at the moment of conception, a new life formed in God's image is made. Now we know not every zygote makes it to birth. We know that as cells grow and move along, they, they split. And they become twins. There's a lot we know. There's far more that we don't know. What we do know is that God is God we are not. We do know that we often have more questions than we do answers. But in our pursuit for answers, we must pursue the Word of God for our leading. We must be rooted and grounded in the Word of God. It's honorable when a person chooses to give his or her life to save the life of another. In fact, it's what Jesus did when he willingly allowed himself to be beaten, stricken, crucified on your behalf, on my behalf, so that we might have 
a right relationship with him. As we celebrate communion, I want to invite you to come forward to, we have two stations up front, two in the back, we have a gluten-free station over here. We want to invite you, if you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior, the sin sacrifice for you, come, eat, drink. But as you do, first, thank God for your own life. Because I I just have to believe that in this room, there are people, because of something you've done, maybe because of something done to you, you're not sure if you're very valuable. Friend, know that your value is massively in the value that God gave you when he knitted you together in your mother's womb. What happened to you, what you have done to others is not a devaluing of who you are. If you have been made complete in Christ or if you haven't, come to Jesus today. Throw off the cloak of your sin and without explaining yourself, just grasp on to Jesus who gave his life for you. Because you are special, holy in his sight.